0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome, 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 friend. I'm TK, your tour guide to the past, and you are listening to For the Love of History, the podcast where we talk about world history, women's history, and weird history. Welcome back, or welcome for the first time ever. Whichever it is, I am simply delighted that you are here today, friend, because I got story for you. Before we dive into our topic today, I'd like to bring to your attention the new and improved Patreon. We got going on. New tiers, new content, and so much more. You can join for as low as $2 a month and support for the love of history and get some exciting extra content. And if that's not your gig, no worries. Leaving a rating and review is also super duper helpful. Ratings and reviews are like Little offerings on the altar of the SEO and algorithm gods. And uh, I thank you for your help appeasing them. (laughs) Now that we got that out of the way, it's time to talk about a World War II baddie that you might not have heard about. We don't normally cover World War II times here, but I will make an exception for this non-binary sugar baby princess spy that goes by the name... Yoshiko Kawashima and just a quick content warning before we dive in there is brief mention of sexual assault self-harm and drug addiction so if you need to skip this episode that is totally okay we'll see you next week so that said grab a cold beverage because things are about to heat up in this episode and let's get to it. Empress Chi appointed her little two-year-old nephew, Puyi, as emperor, thinking that she would be able to simply continue ruling with him as a little puppet, given the fact that he was, like, two years old. But fate had other plans, because literally the day before Puyi's enthronement, Chi died. I don't know what kind of writer's room was going on when the fates came up with that, but, uh, Oh, the timing was a choice. With the Empress Dowager gone, two-year-old Puyi on the throne, and some other not-great political choices that people made, the Qing Dynasty came to an end in 1911. The Republic of China was created, and this left the baby boy emperor and the rest of the royal bloodline in a bit of a pickle. Inside said pickle jar was Aizen Jido Wang Wanggu. They were the 14th daughter of Prince Su and his fourth concubine, Lady jang This made her the cousin of Emperor Puyi, and they were just a year younger than him. Prince Su was absolutely devastated by the revolution. The imperial family had been spared by the republic in return for the emperor's abdication, but that still left them in a very dangerous position. Other countries were out here sniffing around to get some leverage over the very precarious situation China was in at the moment. And one of those countries was Japan. Japan and China have been beefing for forever. I'm pretty sure that it's because one of China's names for Japan was the land of the submissive dwarves, which shots fired, but who knows? Bottom line, they have been at odds for thousands of years. And when an opportunity to mess with China's politics came knocking, Naniwa Kawashima answered the door. Who is Naniwa Kawashima, you ask, dear one? Great question. I'd love to answer. He is above all else. Human garbage. Sentient refuse. He is Three evil honey badgers in a trench coat posed as a human being. He sucks ass. (laughs) Is what I'm trying to say. He sucks so much ass. Plain and simple. He's the worst. But nonetheless, he enters center stage into our story in 1915. Now, there are two accounts that I found about how he ended up in this chapter of the big, big book of history in the first place. So Prince Su had a bunch of kids and Xiang Wanggu was one of them. And in one account, Prince Su was approached by Naniwa Kawashima, who worked for Japanese intelligence and allegedly the Black Dragon Nationalist Group, which we'll talk about later. Supposedly, Naniwa persuaded Su to give him Jiang Wanggu. And another story is that Su and Naniwa had been like best friends and he asked Naniwa to take Jiang Wanggu because they were somehow China's last way of restoring the Qing dynasty. Regardless of how it went down, in 1915, when Xianggu was eight years old, Naniwa renamed them Yoshiko Kawashima and took them back to Tokyo to raise as his daughter. The Shanghai princess was now Yoshiko. This poor eight year old child was taken from both her parents and they would never see them again. From birth, Yoshiko's life was a roller coaster. They were born into a dying dynasty and shipped off to another country to live with a complete stranger who turned out to be a a monster. But when Yoshiko's life hit them when they were down, they got up and sucker punched life in the balls. (laughs) From the moment they arrived in Japan, Yoshiko took no shit from anyone. When Yoshiko's life hit them while they were down, they got up and sucker-punched life in the balls. (laughs) From the moment they arrived in Japan, Yoshiko took no shit from anyone. Yoshiko was enrolled in an all-girls secondary school at first, but was not having it with the school's rules and gender norms. Yoshiko did what they wanted to, which included riding a horse to school every day and getting in so much trouble uh, that they were asked politely to uh, exit the school after only one year. What did they do to get kicked out so quickly, you might ask, dear one? Well, one example is when Yoshiko's classmate was struggling financially. Yoshiko took naked photos of themselves and gave their friend the photo to sell so that she could get money. (laughs) The school did not take too kindly to that, but the classmate I'm sure appreciated the gesture. Yoshiko also gravitated to more boyish activities. They used men's grammar when speaking Japanese and refused to conform to Japan's very strict gender roles of the time. After being asked to never return, Yoshiko entered a boy's school dressed as a boy and using a boy's name. Outside of school, Yoshiko trained in judo and kendo. Kendo is like a Japanese fencing and it's like super tough and really, really fun. I used to do it. They also learned military strategy and espionage tactics, which is just wild to me. What kind of high school was this? Yoshiko became a horseback riding, martial arts loving, tactical badass, but not everyone was down with this young independent person living their own way. Yoshiko's adoptive father, and I hesitate to use the word father. Uh, In fact, I won't because this man is awful. He did not take kindly to Yoshiko's free spirit. He wanted little Yoshi to be a puppet, a pawn in his game of getting power via getting his sticky little fingers all up into China's politics. Naniwa was an abusive prick who would often chase Yoshiko around the house with a shovel and beat them when they didn't comply with his demands. And as Yoshiko got older, the way Naniwa spoke about her drastically changed and got creepy af. He would often joke joke with his friends that he would just marry Yoshiko himself which is diabolical. A diabolical thing to say about a child that you have been raising since they were 8 years old. Get fucked. Oh my god. I oh, oh. I hate I hate ate him so much this abusive disgusting monster's actions accumulated on October 6, 1924 when he sexually assaulted Yoshiko. Yoshiko was understandably traumatized and that night decided that they would no longer be a woman but live in the in-between as a man. The next day Yoshiko cut off their hair and styled it like a man. Yoshiko hoped that by dressing in this way, Naniwa Kawashima would no longer be sexually attracted to them. From this point, Yoshiko fell into a downward spiral. They were 16 years old, essentially alone in a foreign country, in a place that didn't respect their value or their personality. And the one person who was supposed to protect them violated them in the most horrendous way. Yoshiko was helpless and desperate and attempted to take their own life not once, but three times. Being a Chinese princess meant that Yoshiko's life was often in the spotlight, which I'm sure did not uh, help her mental health at all. And this included their darkest times. The Asai Shimbun, which is one of Japan's most popular newspapers, it's still around today, published a story on the situation in 1924 with the headline that makes me want to scream into the void. It said, Kawashima Yoshiko's beautiful black hair completely cut off because of unfortunate rumors. Makes firm decision to become a man, touching secret tale of her shooting herself. Founded rumors, my ass. This poor child is 17 years old. Excuse me, 16 years old when this happened. What, what an inappropriate thing to write in a national, a gang newspaper. In, <laughs> what? It just, ah. Uh, they are a child. They're a, they're a child. They're a child, you should not be putting children's business out on a national newspaper. Common sense, people. Why is this not common sense? Okay, calm down, TK. So, in another article published about two days later, Yoshiko was quoted as saying, I was born with what the doctors call a tendency toward the third sex and so I cannot pursue an ordinary woman's goals in life. Since I was young, I've been dying to do the things that boys do. My impossible dream is to work hard like a man for China, for Asia. After the third attempt on their life that thankfully failed, Yoshiko said, Fuck it. Enough is enough. I'm done with this place. I'm done with Naniwa. I'm done hiding who I am. It's time to GTFO. For a few glorious months, Yoshiko hid from Naniwa and the rest of the world in the heart of Tokyo, moving from rich bachelor to wealthy heiress living that sugar baby life. But that period in Yoshiko's life came to a swift end when a marriage between Yoshiko and a Mongolian prince was arranged. And now is the time to buckle your seatbelt, friend, because things are about to get wild real fast. So who arranged this marriage, you might ask? Well, according to the file that the FBI has on Yoshiko, a Japanese, Japanese, oh my goodness, a Japanese nationalist organization. Say that three fives, three fives, fives fast. (laughs) Okay. A Japanese nationalist organization called the Black Dragons was responsible for this arrangement. There is no clear evidence that Naniwa Kawashima was a member of the Black Dragons, but according to these FBI documents and Yoshiko's own account, Naniwa Kawashima was the one who made the arrangements on the behalf of the Black Dragons. Naniwa and the Black Dragons really wanted Manchuria, which is in northeastern China, like right above North Korea. It shares a border with North Korea. And they thought that they could weasel their way into China via Mongolia's military force. So, what better way to get this Mongolian military than marry off a Qing dynasty princess to a Mongolian prince? Zim zalabim, you got an alliance. Love it. Except we don't love it. The marriage only lasted for three years. Apparently, Yoshiko was pretty content, but after a while, they grew bored of the desert life. So, and, and this is straight from the FBI's file on them. Yoshiko, dressed in scarlet, raced through the brown desert on a white horse and managed to escape Japan. (gasps) Epic, epic, it's shit. Okay, alone at night, they escaped an unwanted marriage and Yoshiko had the forethought to be that extra, to put on a scarlet outfit, ride a white horse through the desert. That is the sort of extra I want in my life if it's not that level of extra i don't want it it's chef's kiss 10 out of 10 10 out of 10 escape from uh unwanted marriage <laughs> but what about the black dragons like it was a it was a great escape but are they gonna be pissed like didn't this piss off naniwa and the black dragons what did they think what did they do they were not an organization to be trifled with. It was a secret society of some of the most ruthless spies and nationalist military leaders that were responsible for starting wars and causing death and destruction all throughout Asia. How did they handle this runaway bride that just like dipped and messed up their military plans? (laughs) They were actually they were actually hella impressed by Yoshiko. They were like, um hey, do you wanna be a formal member and spy for us? And Yoshiko was like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. Let's do it. And thus began Yoshiko's life of espionage. Just like that. The Black Dragons decided to put Yoshiko under the tutelage of Dukichi Tanaka, a top intelligence officer in the Japanese Kwantung Army. He was one of the first people to actually see Yoshiko for their intelligence and potential. And they may have like had a little fling going on, but who knows? Who knows? Regardless, he trained Yoshiko and they became even more dangerous. Little 20-year-old Yoshi's first mission as a spy was a doozy. Like a real go big or go home moment. Remember that little boy emperor at the beginning of the episode? Well, it was the 1930s and he was a man now and perfectly positioned to be a puppet once again but this time for Japan. Yoshiko's job was to drive his wife, Empress Wanrong, and her dog <laughs> to the city Changchu where he was hiding. So, Yoshiko dressed up as a man, hopped in the car, tucked the empress and her dog in the trunk and delivered her safely to Puyi. Excellent. Shortly after, he became the head of state of Manchukuo, and two years later, he would be crowned the puppet emperor of Manchukuo. But Yoshiko and everybody else didn't really know that he was a puppet. Only Japan knew that he was a puppet. And Yoshiko would later go on to say that this day was the happiest moment in her life. After the delivery mission was over, Yoshiko was sent to Shanghai to cause problems like riots and hate crimes and murder, and this is when morally gray Yoshiko comes out. It was Yoshiko's responsibility to distract China from paying attention to the Japanese takeover of Manchuko, and they were very good at their job. They became political enemy number one to the Republic of China. And this is when the life and times of Yoshiko Kawashima became blurry, shall we say. Yoshiko became a larger-than-life figure. Tales of their cruelty, bravery, mercenary skills, assassination attempts, cross-dressing, and life of so-called debauchery spread all across the world and yoshiko denied nothing they thrived off of the mythology surrounding them they straight up pulled a lizzo and said all the rumors are true my friend believe that (laughs) while yoshiko was stirring up trouble they kept at their spy side hustle as well Sometimes, Yoshiko would go to opium and morphium dens disguised as a Chinese or Korean prostitute to mix with lower-level officials and officers. Yoshiko would smooth them and booze them. Along the way, she converted others to becoming spies, and it was said that at one time she had 400 spies that worked under her. Yoshiko became the enforcer. If someone didn't obey the orders Japan gave, then they would have to deal with Yoshi. If someone wasn't giving up information, they would have to deal with Yoshi. And trust me when I say, you do not want that. That is not, it's not going to be a good time for you. Not a good time for you. In 1933, they became friends with Colonel Tada Hayao the commander of the Japanese army in northern China. Colonel Tada was impressed with Yoshiko and apparently found them to be gorgeous, courageous, and beautiful and was like, you know what? I'm going to give you an army. (laughs) So he like, he gave Yoshiko their own army and it wasn't a small army. There's like 3,000 troops in this army. And... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what kind of present is that? I can't. How is this real life? Like, this guy is like, you know what? You are super hot. I'm going to give you 3,000 men to command. Cool. <laughs> this army was called the Aokyo Army. And from that point, Yoshiko began to be known as Commander Hui. And Japan ate that shit up. They fell in love with Yoshiko. They became a huge, huge hit in nationalistic Japan. Yoshiko was the poster child of the army and was often called the Joan of Arc of the Orient. There is this picture of them on a horse in full military regalia looking like the love interest in an enemy to lovers YA novel. It's... So good. So good. Yoshko was finally getting the recognition they wanted. They were fulfilling their dreams of being a man that helps China. Yoshko had their own army, their own title. Puyi was like kind of emperor again. And they were feeling accomplished and brave enough to remind people that they were the last Qing Dynasty princess, which rubbed a few people, military officials, that is, the wrong way. And not long after, some of the top officials of the Japanese Tang army grew tired of her. In 1934, Yoshiko was sent back to Japan, where they became a national celebrity. Marumatsu Shofu wrote his best-selling novel, Beauty in a Man's Attire, Based on Yoshiko's life, they were invited to parties, they gave speeches, and often appeared on radio shows. Yoshiko was even brought back as an honored guest at the girls' high school that they were kicked out of. Which I love. It's so funny. She was a true Joan of Arc for Japan during World War II, rallying people and giving them courage. She continued her life of espionage up until 1942 when they began realizing what exactly it was that the Japanese military was doing to the people of China. And the fact that the Japanese emperor did not share Yoshiko's desire For truly reinstating the Qing Dynasty. Japan was in its colonization era and it was not having it. After coming to this realization, Yoshiko retired from the Japanese Kwantung army and lived her life in solitude. She lived by herself at a hotel in Tokyo and only had a pet monkey to keep her company. The glory had faded the excitement of espionage and the rush of war had left her with an extreme addiction to opiates and most likely PTSD. Yoshko wished to fade and become simply another legendary character in the big, big book of history, but their murky past caught up with them. As World War II drew to an end, the stories of Yoshko stepping over bodies in the streets with a smile on their face The hundreds of people they supposedly killed in cold blood, the string of lovers, both men and women, that they kept to extract military secrets, their unconventional attire and lifestyle all came back to haunt them. Both Japan and the Republic of China and the FBI were keeping tabs on Yoshiko because of their murky past and because they were a solitary figure the Japanese Kuangtun army began to be suspicious of Yoshi. The same people that they had worked with for years, sacrificed their physical and mental health for, turned on Yoshiko. The Japanese government at one point even planned to assassinate her. And because of this, she fled to Beiping, China. Their home country is where they thought that they would be safe. Yoshiko was fighting for China after all, even if she did it through Japan. But everything came crashing down in 1945 when Japan surrendered, bringing World War II to an end. Princess Yoshiko Kawashima was arrested by the Chinese army on... October 15, 1947, Yoshiko was put on trial for being a traitor to China. The rumors that had fueled their legendary status were now leading them to their demise. Yoshiko told judges that they did not betray their country and that their goal had always been to restore the Qing dynasty and help the Chinese people. But this was a dynasty that they had never known. In the end, Yoshiko was sentenced to death on October 22nd, 1947. And to finish out the episode, I'll read you an excerpt from Phyllis Birnbaum's book, Manchu Princess, Japanese Spy. On a March morning in 1948, the prisoner emerged as the sun was coming up. She had expressed a wish to die quietly, without the fanfare that had often accompanied her every move. She had also wanted to wear a white Japanese robe for her last moments, but the request was denied. On March 25th, I will be executed, she had written to her adoptive father. Please tell young people to never stop praying for China's future. These were the last words of Yoshiko Kawashima. They were shot in the back of the head on the morning of March 25th, and they were just 42 years old. But death was not the end for Yoshi. It never is for legendary figures. Some continue to vilify Yoshiko, removing humanity from their story because ambiguity does not make for a good villain. There are those that paint Yoshiko as a lustful, slutty opportunist only out to improve their own position in life. Others paint Yoshiko as the tragic heroine, fighting for a China that she never knew and a time that had long passed. Others venerate them as a non-binary cross-dressing icon that threw convention to the wind to live their own way. And to all those people, I say, why can't the answer be D, all of the above? Why can't Yoshiko be a slutty opportunist and a hero and a non-binary icon at the same time? Life is long and people change. History tends to flatten figures because morally gray, nuanced individuals don't fit neatly into a story of good and evil. But life is not neat, nor is the big, big book of history. Well, dear one, we have come to our final thought, which is a conspiracy theory about the death of Yoshiko Kawashima. For decades, there was a rumor that spread all around China and Japan that Yoshiko was not actually dead. Apparently, the Black Dragons, the Japanese military, or the Qing Dynasty sympathizers either snuck Yoshiko out of jail and replaced them with another person, and Yoshiko escaped, or execution was staged, and they escaped into the night to live out their life in solitude as they wished. Now there is no, no substantial evidence to support this. There are only whispers and rumors and supposed sightings, but I do love the idea that even in death, Yoshiko's story is shrouded in mystery. Oh my goodness, who decided to have two sad endings in a row? That that was us. That would be us. We decided to do that. And specifically me. It was me. I decided to. Nonetheless, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Uh, I know I had a blasty blast telling you about it because we do love a morally ambiguous uh, gray character up in here. And if you enjoyed the episode or at least got something out of the episode, please consider sending it to your other History BFF or sharing it on your social medias. That's also a really nice thing that you can do to pray at the altar of the SEO and algorithm gods. You can also head on over to For the Love of History Patreon and become a member. You can do a trial of it and see if it's right for you. Or as always, you know, you can can leave a rating or review and... uh, or send me a message. (laughs) I love hearing from you. letting me know what you think. Oh, and if you haven't already, please subscribe to For the Love of History YouTube channel. It's pretty great. You can see my face. And I have very pretty makeup on right now. (laughs) It's green. (laughs) So next week, we are going to finish off Pride Month. We have a very special guest coming to join us. And I am so excited for them to tell you the story of Frida So, before we leave, make sure you do something nice for yourself this week. Take care of yourself. Like, seriously, I'm not joking. I'm not joking. Do something to bring yourself a little bit of joy this week. Take a walk outside. Lay on the floor listening to music. Eat something that makes you happy. Watch an episode of something that you've been putting off. Finish that project, that creative project that you've been wanting to. I don't care what you do as long as you do something to make yourself happy and do not forget to drink your water you beautiful dehydrated ray of absolute sunshine you delicious jelly filled glazed donut with sprinkles on the top water yourself take a sip of water and I will see you next week when we talk about Frida Kahlo okay love you bye why is there a metronome right now Okay.